All right, well, good morning. My name is Sam, as most of you know, and we got a big pencil up here. Um, open up your Bibles, if you would, to Malachi chapter 2. We uh, go through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, and uh, we're in Malachi right now, and there's a booklet on that shelf thing on the wall, and uh, those are study guides, and you'll see that uh, there's one there from Malachi, of which is uh, an unedited version because we actually put that one. But, so we know there are errors in it, and it even has a sticker in there to prove it, we knew. But, um, that will take you through, if you're not in a road group, uh, which is our version of community groups, those are opportunities to gather during the week and to really dialogue about what you've learned, what you've heard, what challenged you, what uh, you uh, didn't understand, and to gather uh, as a group to uh, not just study, but to pray and to fellowship and to eat and to laugh and to cry. And uh, so we hope that you'll join one of those. But we're in Malachi chapter 2 today, and we're going to be going through the first nine verses. So if you'd follow along with me, I'm going to read out of Malachi. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings indeed. I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, and dung on your op- the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge in people. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You have graciously given it to us, and it possesses the power to change us from the inside out. So I pray, Father, that you move me out of the way today, that Holy Spirit, you lift the veils from over all of our hearts, and you will speak to us what you need to speak, words of comfort or words of conviction. I pray, Father, that you will delight in our worship today, that our worship will be meaningful because it upholds or lifts up the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. So, the worst uh, has happened for God's people. And the worst is that their worship has become meaningless. They still gather, still sing their songs, still make sacrifices by all appearances, but their worship is meaningless. Which, if you're a pastor of a church frightens you if that's a possibility. That you can do all the things that would look like worship and God would look down and say, meaningless, worthless. Even if the world or the Christian culture would say, man, those guys are rocking it. 
Worship is meaningful when you do everything to make God's name great. And it is meaningless when you don't. And when you are making something else great. Something else important. God here in in this passage, prior to this as well, has condemned the people basically for despising His name by making what He calls and is described as worthless sacrifices. And by despised His name, what He means literally is that they've taken it lightly. That they can kind of come with half hearts and partial obedience and think, well, God doesn't mind. It's okay. God said it's not okay. Instead of offering the best of their flocks to the Lord, they bring the priests blind, three-legged animals, itching and full of scabs, and offer them up. Their sacrifices are several things. They're unlawful. It's just flat-out disobedient. Their commitments are pretty dishonest because they are pretending to bring something that they are owed or they owe, and they're actually not. And their worship, God said, is, is worthless, though they're going through the motions. And God is grieved. He actually has two emotions, I think, going on here. God is grieved because they're not loving Him as Father. But I also see from last week, we talked about the other aspect of God that He is devoted to. He's angry. He's angry because they don't fear Him enough to obey. So, God the Father and and God the Lord or God the Master, He does hold men responsible for their lame sacrifices. Individual men, individual families, individuals. He holds them responsible for their lame sacrifices. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, He basically says, I curse the cheat. I curse the guy who vows something and brings something else. So he condemns them. They're breaking their vows to God. They're covering up their rebellion with religion. And they're offering God their leftovers for the same reason that we all ever do. Which is, something else has become more important than God. And so the question that you should have, or that we have when we read this, is why has that happened? Why have the people been allowed to go this far? Why hasn't anything been done? And so this is where we get into chapter 2. God has cursed those who are bringing the sacrifices. They're responsible to bring what they owe and what God has said is acceptable. But now He's addressing those who have accepted the lame sacrifices, namely the priests, the pastors. Now the priests were not responsible to force every single person to come and worship God perfectly. But they were responsible to protect the purity of any worship that took place at the altar of God. They were charged to guard God's table. To make sure that what was offered was was right. And this is the primary job of a pastor if you weren't certain. The primary job of a pastor is not to counsel every single person that needs counseling. It is not to 
plant as many churches as you can or, or manage things perfectly, though certainly there are all those duties included. The primary job of a pastor is to protect the purity of worship. And we'll get to it, but a preview of coming events, it goes the same for those who are pastoring your own home. You are charged primarily with protecting the purity of worship in your home and the pastors and the priests for the church. In other words, the priests should have said something. They should have said something. Even if the people would not listen, they should have said something. I mean, how often do we think like, well, I'm not going to say anything because they won't listen. Or this will be the reaction. It doesn't matter what the reaction is. That is not the reason why we say something. The priest should have said something here. It was their God-given job. This isn't just another Israelite who, well, you know what, you have responsibility to your Israelite brother to say something. Dude, Jethro, you shouldn't probably take that three-legged animal up to the priest because he's not going to accept it. I believe that's true. But the priest had a job. The priests were appointed by God. They were the chosen among the chosen. And I say that carefully because I know where your mind goes, oh, the chosen ones. The priests are the chosen ones. Well, they were. God chose them, but just like the people, let us not forget, they were not chosen because they were any less sinful than anyone else. And that's evidenced pretty clearly by the pretty elaborate purification process a priest had to go through just to make a sacrifice for the people. I won't go into it, but it's very detailed. They had to make sure they were cleansed and, and, and pure before God as much as a dirty man can be so they could even make a sacrifice, lest they actually die doing it. But see, unlike the people... So they were like the people and they were just as sinful, just as broken, just as rebellious. Your pastor is just as sinful, just as broken, just as rebellious. I'm no more cleaner than you are. We're all in this together and we suck. Let's make that clear, okay? But unlike the people, the Levites were called to a particular service for the people. They were given a particular task by God. They were appointed to be this, this mediator, this go-between for the covenant of God to, to make sure the relationship between God and man continued. We're speaking about Israel here. They were to make acceptable sacrifices. They did many other things, but that was the primary responsibility so that the relationship continued between God and men, between God and His people. It ensured a peaceful relationship. Now, what we see here, and what God says, O oh, priest, this command is for you. Right? The priests were fearful of confronting the people for whatever reason. They didn't want to say the hard words. They didn't want to offend somebody. They didn't want to make that big giver upset by speaking a truth that they knew might hurt them. And so God says, okay, Priests, you don't want to confront the people, I'm going to confront you. And so this chapter is largely right to the priests. 
He says, this is for you, priests. And the thing that's interesting is that I always like to look at whenever there's a, something directly spoken by God of like what He doesn't say. So it's interesting what He doesn't command the priests to do. He doesn't say, go make those people worship. Go make them get their act together. Go preach to them harder. He actually speaks right to their hearts and speaks to what their own worship is like. What their own awe of God. He speaks to the motivation, right? The sin behind the sin. What's actually going on in your hearts that you would even allow people to get this far? And so he says, stop profaning my name. Stop profaning my name. Make right sacrifices and think about your own heart of worship. And he warns them if they don't. It's like if you don't Take me seriously. If you don't take the honoring of my name seriously, I'm going to curse you in the same way I just cursed those people. And we kind of, I think, take the word curse and we go, what's well, curse? It doesn't really have much of a, it's almost like a mystical connotation to now. Like, you know, don't you like witches and stuff do that now? Isn't that just weird, right? We have to understand cursing and blessing, and we'll talk about that. But to be cursed by the Almighty God is nothing to kind of go, eh, okay. He says, you're going to be cursed if you don't take this seriously. Jesus said in the book of Matthew that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. And it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. And I use that verse because the people's love of God and their fear of God is directly connected to the love and fear that the priests have for God. In other words, I believe, not in a, um, not so much in a positive way, but a very much in a negative way, so goes the pastor, so goes the church. Or another way to say it is that the depth of, of spirituality in a church or a people will never surpass the spirituality of the pastors. And if there's a problem with worship, a problem with prayer, a problem with offering and sacrifice, I think we ask questions of what's going on in the pastor's heart. It might seem like a lot of responsibility, but I think that that's true. I'm more concerned with the godliness of our pastors in terms of them being husbands and fathers and good godly men than they are about being perfect managers of churches. Because if you get those first three right, the rest will follow in tune. But the depth of spirituality of church, I don't think will surpass the depth of spirituality of the pastors, and I say that negatively. And I think we could probably say the same for our homes. If you're pastoring a home the depth of spirituality in that home is not going to ever surpass yours. And so these priests are apathetic. And their apathy has made God angry. And He warns them, look, I'm going to curse you. Specifically, He says, I'm going to curse their blessings. I'm going to basically condemn your offspring. And I'm going to put dung on your faces. Yes, God said that. The Bible's amazing if you just read it. Incredibly enjoyable to read. 
And we have to do the, do a little bit of work here so that we don't just kind of like, you know, laugh it off. It's like, oh, that's just God using poop humor. Ha, 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 right? There actually is something very significant going on. First, you understand that God charged the priest with blessing the people. Specifically, you may have heard it before, in number 6, there's a verse, and here's what it says. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So the priests had the responsibility to look at the people representing God and actually speak this blessing upon them. And the blessing was basically reminding them that God's face is looking upon you and God is smiling and God is forgiving you. It is an Old Testament blessing. And that blessing, as I said, was synonymous with God looking at you. Reminding them they're loved. Reminding them they're secure. Reminding them that He is their Lord and protector. So, that's the first thing that's going to be cursed. But secondly, Aaron and his sons were the ones who would perpetually function in this role. So, his son would be a priest, and his son would be a priest, and his son would be a priest. So, now he tells them, I'm going to curse your offspring. And then thirdly, before the priest could actually speak that blessing or offer any sacrifices, as I've already said, they had to be purified by making a sacrifice of a bull. Now, it's important to remember, though God is threatening to wipe poop on His face, that doesn't mean that prior to getting that, the priest was clean. The priest is already dirty, but God has allowed graciously this function to occur where he'll be purified, if you will, in the eyes of God to offer these. But he says, now I'm going to smear this. And the bull offering that they would make in their purification process is very intriguing. Because in Exodus 29, describing this offering they would make to purify themselves so they could make sacrifices, says this, the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Okay, so what is God actually telling these priests in terms of how He's going to curse them and what He's going to curse them with? So He curses their blessings that they're supposed to give, their offspring, which would be their future priests coming, and He does the same to their offerings by placing dung on the priest's face. Literally, he says, I'm going to smear your sin back onto your face, making your offerings unacceptable, your sons unable to offer because you are already or still in your sins. And if the priests are not purified by God, then the people don't have a chance to have their sins atoned for. So without a priest, Israel will die in their sins even if they try and bring sacrifices because you have no one to actually offer it, authorized to offer it. And so, think about this. The non-confrontational pastor, the, the pastor who 
I'm not going to speak the hard truth. I'm not going to tell the person, you know what, your worship might be a little off. I'm not talking about singing. Right? Unwilling to speak hard truth thinks he's being loving. He actually believes that he's doing a good thing. I don't want to offend. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to discourage them. He is actually causing hurt. So what's a pastor supposed to do? So he goes into what a pastor is supposed to do after telling Mike, this is what you're screwing up, better take it seriously. Well, God is not concerned with the purity of sacrifices as much as He is concerned with the purity of the heart of the one sacrificing. That was what He's truly concerned with. So God reminds him of this covenant of Levi. What's the covenant of Levi? Well, the Levites were the priesthood, the tribe of which function as the priest. But this covenant of Levi actually began, if you will, was initiated in the wilderness wandering. When they were wandering before they came into the promised land, it comes out of Numbers 25. And the Israelites were wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness because they refused to listen to God's Word and go into the promised land that He had promised and said you will succeed. They were scared, and so He basically makes them wander for 40 years to kill everyone over the age of 21. And Aaron, at the time this story happens where the covenant Levi comes in, Aaron, who was the first high priest, dies. And so they're sad, they're mourning, and in a short amount of time, the men of Israel start going after foreign women, which is breaking God's covenant. So the high priest is gone, and they start basically having a good time, breaking God's covenant, and God gets incredibly angry with them. He gets so angry with them, he goes to Moses and says, all right, Moses, these guys have totally broke the covenant. I want you to go hang all the chiefs. Moses is like, oh, okay. Moses doesn't fool around with God. So he goes, and he says, he goes to the judges. He says, all right, guys, go kill them. And no one does it. And then, one of the men who had taken a foreign wife or a foreign girlfriend, in the sight of everyone, brings out this midnight girl that he's been sleeping with. Everyone's just crying. Oh my gosh, what have you done? And they're weeping. Except one guy's not weeping. His name was Phineas. And he was the grandson of Aaron. He was a priest. And he grabs a spear, and he walks up and goes, poof, poof, kills them both. And was like, oh, right? And you're like, oh, my snarf burger. I mean, everyone's like, dude, that was, that's intense. Like, Phineas, man, you just, you're going a little overboard, aren't you? Like, that's intense. And so God comes and says, let me tell you what I think about what Phineas just did. And here's what God says about Phineas's fury comes out of Numbers 25. It says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace 
And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Phineas. Pretty serious about sin. Pretty serious about the worship of God. See, the covenant of Levi there and in Malachi is called this covenant of peace. And we kind of have this idea, oh, peace, that's so great. Peace, right? Wonderful. The priesthood existed to ensure there was peace. Namely, that they were protected from big bad Satan. No, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And so this priesthood was put in to ensure peace and harmony between God and men. But in Malachi, what does he call it? So it's covenant of peace, but it's also what? Covenant of fear. A covenant of fear is what he calls it. Meaning, why did Phineas act at all? Because he feared God more than anything else. I've had conversations with churches slash cults confronting them about their false gospel, confronting them about the sheep that they have hurt, confronting them that you need to stand before your church and repent of your sin or you're going to hurt more and more people. And the question I would have, I can't do that. And the question I would say is, what are you afraid of? And I could list it for them. I'm afraid of people leaving the church. I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of fill in the blank. I said, the one thing I know you're not afraid of is God. Phineas had a fear of God. A deep fear. No one was like, Phineas, do something, dude. You're going to let that go? Phineas, inside, had a fear of God. The Bible says that he was jealous for his God. Not jealous of Jealous for his God. Namely, for God's reputation. For God's name. More than anything, he desired others to fear the name of God. Because he himself stood in awe of God. Phineas was in awe of God. And he was not only willing, but he was devoted to removing whatever obstacles existed to prevent pure worship, good or bad. He was devoted to removing whatever obstacles was going to get in the way to hindering the pure worship of God, good or bad. Because we always think of the bad ones. And there are plenty of good ones, things that are, quote, good, that become obstacles to our worship. The priest is responsible to stand up and say that. The priest is responsible to declare that. The priest is responsible to challenge people. Not because it brings some benefit to him. Not because more people will fear him. Because he desires more than anything that people will fear God. I want more than anything, not for my children to fear the world, to fear me, but to fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is what will bring prosperity in life. The fear of the Lord is what will bring contentment in suffering. The fear of the Lord is what I want them to have more than anything.
But we know that, and it says it as much, that even in their zeal, priests didn't walk around with spears just looking at people like this. You know, like, how's your worship, huh? Pretty good? Shing, shing. Better be. Remember Phineas? Yeah. I'm on the Phineas patrol. Right? That's not what happens. That's not what priests should do. But they did have a means, right? There were certain things that they did to continue to be jealous for God. And it says, this is what priests should do in the text. The priests were supposed to be faithful to teach the people and teach them all of the words of God. They were to proclaim God's Word. They were all supposed to walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk in what they preached, right? Live God's Word. It's not enough for a pastor to be a great communicator and to preach how you need to love your wives if he doesn't love his wife. It's empty words. So they had to have a relationship with God. They had to walk in the Word before they could teach the Word. But then he says more. He says that many were turned away from their iniquity. Many turned away from their sin. Well, how do you do that? You call people to repent. You confront people. You say, stop loving your sin and start loving Jesus. And guess what? That doesn't make you very popular. I know all too well. When I sit down with people and they start talking, I say, you know what? Um, You need to stop it. You are bringing destruction into your home, destruction into your life, and it's only a matter of time before destruction comes in the rest of your family. Well, that's not very nice. No, but it's the truth. Because you're loving blank more than you love Jesus right now. But that's what a pastor and a priest was called to do. To uphold God's Word. When someone sits on your couch or a friend of yours is like, you know, we're living in sin, are you silent? <laughs> yeah, you're living in sin. <laughs> or do you say, whoa, what did you just say? Because it's not about you, it's about upholding God's name. And if that person claims the name of Christian, they're bringing a lot more into that than just their own faith. And they are supposed to guard the Word of the Lord from perversion. They're supposed to protect it. Protect God's Word because false truth comes in. Half-truths come in. So what Malachi says here is that they were to represent the Lord by communicating everything God said. So what God told them, they told others. They were good mailmen. And at this point, the priests have been really bad mailmen. They're like, "Mm, I don't know if I want to give that letter because that's going to be a harsh one. And so they hold it back. So the priests basically fail to do their God-given job. They failed to proclaim the Word. They failed to live the Word. They failed to uphold the Word. They failed to protect the Word. God's Word became unimportant. Is it important in your life? Period. And Scary thing is, is that it calls them being partial. It says you guys became partial in your instruction. Well, what's partial? Well, in my world, it's incomplete. They knew some truth. They maybe taught some have-truths, and then they skipped probably a lot of the hard truths. 
They bounced around the Bible. They used it when it was convenient. They skipped over the parts that might challenge them. Like verses that tell men to train for godliness. I, I don't know what that means. See, they stopped loving God's Word because they stopped seeing it as the source of life. And I don't think failure begins when you stop reading your Bibles. I actually think you stop reading your Bibles when you stop fearing God. When you stop being in awe of God. And because they they failed in that way, they they failed in, in really loving God's Word and and recognizing its power, they began to corrupt the people. And they failed to protect them, and they failed to protect what I'll just call the pulpit, but really the office. See, part of our elder training, we take, we have uh, one guy right now is an elder candidate, so we have uh, five elders, is that right? Five? We have five elders, we have one elder candidate, and we'll have more. And one aspect of the elder candidacy is this. We ask them to make a list of every single person that will be affected if they failed morally in some way. And it becomes a pretty daunting list. And the more responsibility you get, the more influence you realize that you have, and the more your sin, public or private, has an effect on others. Sin never stays private. And so, it's not that we want to scare them. We want to go, you need to understand that this is serious. That your success, so to speak, and failure has an effect way beyond you. When a pastor or a parent, really anyone, shipwrecks their faith, you're not the only one going down with the ship. And I know that many people have come to our church in Marysville and here having had that experience. And what happens when a priest or a pastor, to try to make them synonymous, fails, the people, as Malachi says, end up stumbling into sin. Because when the storms of life hit, or the wolves attack, or the missiles of the enemy start falling, the people scatter like sheep without a shepherd looking for refuge, and they find it somewhere. And it's not always a good place. But more than that, when one pastor fails, I've learned that all other pastors fail too. Or to say, all other pastors suffer. You know how much mistrust has been created because of other pastors' failures? I sit down with people and they say, well, a pastor hurt me, a church hurt me. And I go, yeah, I can't deny it. It's on the news nearly every day. You don't realize the priest here, or a pastor for that matter, ends up not only corrupting people by their failure, but they corrupt the whole office of the priesthood or being a pastor. Perhaps they even bring corruption upon the whole church. Oh, there goes another pastor failing. Happens all the time. And so when the priests fail, man, there's so much more going on. It's not just their name. It's their family name. 
It's their tribe's name. It's the name of Israel. No, it's the name of God. That's where it leads. But I think God continues to kind of kind of deeper. Because not only just fail to do their job and, and fail to protect, but they actually fail to find their joy in the role. Now, they're serving with the wrong motivation where he talked about that. And guess what? They complain about their job as they do it. They're viewing their role as a priest with joylessness. It's a joyless duty with very few benefits. We know this from the first chapter. It's a verse I didn't hit the first when I preached it, because I know I'd come back to it, where God reveals their attitudes. And it's in verse 13, and what he says is them thinking to themselves or saying to themselves, What a weariness this is. What a weariness this is, this being their job. And you snort at it like, oh. I know pastors that have done that and do that. The priests are viewing their job to lead worship as too hard. It's just too hard. I mean, i got to make these sacrifices like every day. The same thing. These people are bringing these offerings to me. I get one day a week break. Barely. It's hard. And they snort at their work because it's messy. I don't know how many sheep you've slaughtered. They weren't just slaughtering one. It was a lot. It was messy and yucky and not fun. And they're beginning to despise their role because it's also unrewarding. What do I mean by that? Well, because they didn't confront the people, the people are bringing their leftovers, and guess where the Levites got their meals? The leftovers of the leftovers. Okay, So now they're eating scabbed leftover food, and they're like, oh, this is terrible. Bringing these offerings, and this is all we get now? Like, yeah, you could have done something about that, but you didn't. They don't view their responsibility as a, as a privilege anymore. doesn't feel like this is a blessing because there's no joy in it. They feel underappreciated. Enter parenthood. Hard, it's messy. It's unrewarding. So before we go celebrate Pastor Appreciation Day and go, oh yeah, pastors, let's remember what the gospel says about who we are as people. Right? First Peter two nine, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Hold on there, Mr. Ford. Are you telling me that this text is not just commands to priests? No, I am telling you it's command to priests and that that's what we all are. Uh-oh. I haven't been listening the whole time. Better pay attention now. I thought that was just a pastor sermon. I love it, it says that we are, not should be priests. It's a different kind of statement. You are a priest for those who are in Christ, whether you act like one or not. 
We all have congregations of some kind, full of people, some many, some few. People that we are in some way responsible to pastor. If you're a husband, you have a wife that you're responsible to pastor. If you are parents, you have children that you're responsible to pastor. If you have friends, guess what? You may be the only person there responsible to pastor them. A neighborhood. Then maybe you are the neighborhood chaplain. A job that you are the only light in. Romans 12 told us that we all go about with our bodies making sacrifices all the time as we live now. Things have changed. And so we, if you think about this, preach a sermon constantly about Jesus. Constantly. Either lies or truth about who He is and what He's done. And the truth is, as we hear that, most of us sound like these priests. We're supposed to be proclaiming, and most of us find ourselves, privately of course, complaining. And I can't say I blame you, because guess what? First of all, I'm going to tell you, I'll just be real honest with you, pastoring's hard. Pastoring's really hard. And I, good thing I've never complained about it, right? Wrong. I've complained, because it's hard. It's messier than I ever could have possibly imagined. It's like once you become a pastor, people are like, let me tell you all my dark secrets. You're like, oh my gosh, right? Never did that before. Your pastor is like, all right, full free game, let's go. It's messy. And it's messy in that, quite frankly, many times I'm sitting out counseling, I don't know what I'm going to say. Everyone thinks like the pastor, like, oh, don't worry. Got a verse for that, right? It's just not the case. Spirituality is messy. Pastoring is messy. It's difficult. Dealing with sin is difficult. And guess what? It's often unrewarding. I don't say that like, so I expect my inbox to be full of appreciative emails. That's not what I'm saying. But it's really no different than, quite frankly, marriage. Marriage is hard. It is messy. It is unrewarding at times. Parenting. Oh, Lord. Hard, messy, unrewarding. Working at our jobs. Supposed to be to the glory of God. This is my spiritual act of worship. Man, this is hard and messy and unrewarding. So as you hear these priests complaining about it, I understand. you got to understand what they're thinking. So you go, what does God want from us as worshipers? Like, how do we get past that? How do we change? Well, I think the first question is asked, what does God actually want from you? Now, I'll tell you what He does He want. He doesn't want a ton of perfect sacrifices. I think what God really wants, despite whether we can achieve this, okay, just kind of listen to this, God wants people who are jealous for His name because they are in awe of it. That's what He wants. He wants people that are so captivated by His glory, so captivated by His greatness, by His majesty, by His power, like Phineas, they remove anything 
sacrifice anything. Get rid of anything that might hinder worship of Him. And this, as I said, doesn't just mean avoiding the bad things. It also means avoiding making all things, good or bad, into ultimate things. Because there are plenty of good things that can become ultimate things. Hebrews 12 says it this way, Let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you don't get to chapter 2, you're going to feel really bad if you can't run. I'm a horrible runner, spiritually speaking. That's why we have verse 2. Did you hear what he said? Becoming that, that zealous priest, being that one who's passionate for God in awe of God, so much so that I'll get rid of anything that might hinder that. We cannot do that by just trying to become more adequate priests. Our imperfect worship can only be healed when we recognize how inadequate we are and we look to Jesus. See, the cross, I believe, changes and has the power to change all of our complaining into proclaiming God. It's not enough, though, just to be able to tell others to look at Jesus or to command them to live for Jesus or to confront them when they don't. Here's where you have to see Jesus. You, husband, wife, man, woman, parent, Pastor, you have to see Jesus as this complete and better Phineas. What do I mean by that? This is awesome. Ready? First, we need a better Phineas to curse us. What are you talking about, right? Curse us? Yes. In ourselves, you and I, we fall short of worshiping God. We don't love God as we ought. Let's just admit it. We never will. We will fall short to the day we die and then we'll perfectly worship Him and it'll be awesome. But until then, we fail to lead others to worship God. We fall short. We make mistakes. Sometimes, you know what, we do decently, but even that falls short. And so before helping anyone, what do we need? Healing. We need our own forgiveness. We need our own cleansing. Jesus is the perfect priest who willingly dies for my sins, for my really poor husbandry or wifery or parenting or whatever. We are sinners worthy to have dung wiped in our faces, and yet we are saved. But consider this. The only sinless one, the only one worthy of glory, willingly accepts my sinful crap smeared on his face. That's what's going on. It's not just, oh, it's gone now. No, it's being smeared on Jesus' face. He not only becomes, Jesus, the perfectly zealous priest I need. Think about this. He actually becomes 
the idolatrous Israelite that I am. He becomes the Phineas who takes care of sin, and he also becomes the Israelite who is killed because of sin. Both. We need a Phineas to curse us, to cleanse us, to forgive us. But we also need a Phineas to bless us. In other words, we need more than a death. I need a new life. I need a new start. I need to have blessing. Jesus obeyed God's command perfectly. He worshipped the glory of God, upheld the honor of God, guarded the name of God, and did all these things perfectly. And through faith, I get it. He gives me His perfection as a priest. And I have heard, and I didn't check this out, that every prayer Jesus prays in the New Testament begins with Father. Or some variation thereof. Except one. One prayer on the cross where He cries out to God. He says, My God, My God, quoting Psalm 22, Why have Thou forsaken Me? And the reason why He could have said, same meaning, My God, My God, why have You cursed Me? So think about this. On that cross, God literally, because this is what the blessing of the Lord is, looking at you, let His countenance shine upon me. God literally turned His face away from His Son. Cursed His Son. And turned His face toward me to bless. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So I not only stand forgiven, I stand blessed. So there's no more need for more approval, more love, more blessing. God is looking upon me and there's no fear of being cursed again. But that doesn't help us practically, or should, but because we have a better Phineas to help us, it does. My priest offered himself as a sacrifice for me that I might be a priest to others. See, like the priest, as I said, you are a husband or a wife or a man or a woman or an employee or a parent, and you have been appointed by God in that role. And though it's hard, and though it's messy, and though it's very often underappreciated, you are His righteousness. You are in that place to uphold the name of God. You are there to display the glory of God. You are there to preach the grace of God. No one else has that job there more than you. And at times, your loved ones or your friends, they will need you to challenge them. They will need you to speak up and, and say something about partial obedience. They will need you to say that's a lame sacrifice. They will need you to talk about heartless worship. They will need that. But most times, let me tell you what they actually need. Let me tell you what your husband or, or your wife actually needs 
Your children, they actually need. Our church needs, even this world. What they really need are not people who try and make perfect sacrifices because there aren't any. They don't need people who try to claim that their sin doesn't stink because it does. The best way to pastor those in your care is for you to live in the awe of Jesus Christ. For you to be fearful of the Lord. For you to be enraptured and captivated by the amazing nature of the cross. They need you to lead them to the throne of Christ by going there first. You can't lead others to see the glories of God's grace in Jesus Christ until you yourself have seen it. I'll close out of Hebrews where it says, since, right, as a result, since, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, knowing that, with confidence, man, I feel like a sucky husband, a sucky wife, a sucky parent, a sucky pastor. Amen, I've been there. And that is why we go with confidence, though, to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Newsflash, we're always in a time of need. We're always in a time of need. We don't need to worry if we are good enough or not. But Christ is, and by grace through faith, my worship through Jesus sounds, feels, looks perfect in the eyes of God. And so we come to the throne of grace because we are always in need, but the best way you can pastor others is to preach that grace to them by living that grace before them. Period. We're going to end our worship with what is actually the climax of worship in our service. We're going to take communion. And as we take communion, we are declaring that we are inadequate priests to pastor anyone. And so this is our opportunity to come to the table. And don't take this table lightly. Don't go through the routine of like, this is just a cup and bread and we do this every Sunday. No. Don't profane the table by coming to it having offered unworthy sacrifices for so long, having pretended as these priests did. Let the Lord speak to your heart and say, you know what? There's something that's become way more important than Jesus in my life. Confess that. And then come to the table and realize there's nothing more important than Jesus. He is the only way through which our worship is healed and by we can heal and help heal others.